0: Wonderful uh, to hear so, um, something prophesied this morning about a new season as we're looking ahead. That's good. It's, uh, it's not just us trying to make a future for ourselves, but it's what God's spoken about our future uh, and how we're stepping into that. And I'm hoping this is, there we go. If you've not yet seen this picture, there are copies of it on the very wonderful red desk, where you can find many things but this morning, our welcome desk. This is a picture that we distributed just after Easter uh, which incorporates a whole number of different things around the future that we uh, we have together, how God wants to touch us, God wants to confront us and do things in us, uh, knock down strongholds that would otherwise constrain us and lead us towards some specific goals in the promised future that He has for us a uh, couple of Sundays after Easter, I shared these things which had been brewing in the church for quite a period of time um, and in that said this, that as a church, we've, we've had statements of vision for the future for a number of years, and uh, we received a challenge about 18 months ago from someone that we invited to challenge us on our vision, saying, the thing is, you're, you're better at articulating vision than you are at doing it. And we were challenged that, that there's a reason for that, which is that we've tended to articulate vision in really quite... Uh, vague terms, which means that it means to everyone whatever they want it to mean, and we've lacked focus in doing things together that would lead to breakthrough. In other words, we have lacked agreement about quite which battles to fight. And another little uh, phrase that has helped to clarify what that might mean is this, and it is overreach. That is that between us, as a church community, we are into more different things than we can do well, overreach. As a church, we're very active, but not seeing the kingdom of God advance as much as we would hope in our impact on the city, people being born again, and, and so on. And we've, I shared those sorts of things, as well as goals that we will have as a future focus, Uh, just after Easter, we had an evening meeting here about just over two weeks ago, what we call a church family meeting, at which we talked a bit more about those things, but actually spent most of our time simply waiting on God for him to do a work in us to address the strongholds that we've known. Now, if all of this is new to you, the videos of what I shared after Easter are online. There's a piece of paper at the back with this picture and some words on it to explain what it's about. But for many of you, you're hearing this for the third or the fourth time. Uh, At that church family meeting on that Wednesday evening, there was just a little bit of time for questions. There's going to be more time for that after we finish lunch today. Uh, And one of the questions that people asked is, well, uh, how exactly are we going to address this issue of overreach? Overreach one thing to identify it. What are we going to do about it? And I said something quite vague. Um, it's in the context of the fact that um, Al has been invited to be the pastor of Weekly Community Church, which is wonderful. Uh, for, um, for that reason, it's... We were waiting to see whether they'd make that invitation. They have. And uh, we needed to just wait a bit and say, well, what does that mean? What changes might that mean for a number of different people? Um, And so I I wasn't able to give much of an answer. Uh, It's now been two weeks since Wheatley realized what a blessing our would be to them. And there's been a little bit of time to start thinking, I'm going this morning to start to give an answer to how we'll address the matter of overreach. It's only a start, And actually, it's not just me telling you, it's the beginning of a conversation that's going to need to involve all of us. It's a conversation that we need to have around activity, which you might call work, and rest. And uh, we don't talk about work and rest as much as we might. And I want to begin by suggesting that there are a couple of different reasons why it's hard for us to talk together about the pattern of work and rest that we have. Uh, Well, that's people spinning lots of plates and looking like they've made it into an art form. Um, That's an art form that we wish to avoid. It's impressive, isn't it? But it's not very productive. (laughs) Um, Okay, strongholds, fine, here we go. I showed the picture on the left in a different context when I was talking earlier in the year. Um, This is about the challenge of talking together about work. The story is told of British missionaries in China finding life to be a bit hard-going and deciding to bring themselves some pleasure by building a tennis court. And so there they were, playing tennis when some local people came along and watched what they were doing with confusion and eventually asked, can't you pay someone to do that for you? (laughs) Uh, One person's pleasure is another person's work. Um, On the right-hand side there, that's where I was on Wednesday. I went to the Brecon Beacons for a couple of days and climbed Sugarloaf, Hill, uh, mountain, I think it might be. Um, and uh, I, w- I walked for about 13 miles and climbed a couple of mountains. And, and for me, it was very much a day off. But you know what? It was hard work. I hurt. Quite, I couldn't walk properly, frankly, for 24 hours afterwards. I'm, I'm not very good at being measured, as some of you will know. Um, on a Sunday afternoon, Bev, my wife, likes to garden likes to tend, and I'm very grateful for the fruit of that. Literally, we have raspberries in plenty at the moment in our garden, as well as wonderful flowers. Uh, For her to garden on a Sunday as part of her rest. Um, Greg is paid to garden, and it would not be quite such a day off, would it? No, it would not. So it can be quite hard to define what constitutes work. And so if we're going to talk together about our level of activity... It means that we need not just to sort of have sight of each other's diaries, but we need to listen to each other's hearts and learn what it is that's going on in each other as we engage in different kinds of activities. So that's a, that's a complication, and sometimes it gets in the way of us having easy conversation, like we could, about the range of activity that we're involved in. Having said that, we don't need to look at diaries. Uh, that's my diary for the coming week. Actually, uh, yeah, I, I have a number of different Google calendars, uh, some shared with family, some shared with p- other people in the church. Um, it looks busy, doesn't it? But I'd say I'm looking forward to this week. Uh, it includes, unusually, two punting trips, uh, an overnight stay in a Cotswold cottage, a birthday party. Uh, lots of meetings with new people um, as well. I know, looking ahead at what's in the week, I also you're all trying to look at the detail of it, aren't you? <laughs> That's fine. I'm, I'm happy to share it with, with all of you, uh, see what my life looks like. It also, what, what's hi- hidden in here is also, um, there is, I know that there are several really quite challenging decisions to be made, which are already weighing on my mind a little bit. Um, I think a couple of them may well involve confrontations with people, possibly even rebuke. There are some people I might need to rebuke this week. Uh, I don't think they're in Oxford, just in case you're (laughs) worrying about that. Um, So actually, I look ahead to this week, and I think this is going to be a fun week. There's all kinds of things going on, um, but I'm looking forward to it. And there's going to be rest and space and there's going to be some challenges, and there's a fair level of activity as well. Here's the thing. Um, We're not always honest with each other about why we make the choices that we do. Let me explain. We're not always honest with each other. This is British culture particularly about why we make the choices that we do, because I could show you that, as indeed I am, and if you asked me this week... To do something that I don't want to do, I could very easily say, oh, look, I'm sorry, I'm busy. And in British culture, that's a trump card. If someone says to me, could you do this for me? It is not allowable, culturally, for me to say, I just can't be bothered It is not allowable for me to say, I don't really care about your goals, even though that might be true. (laughs) It is not allowable for me to say, I've just downloaded a new game onto my phone, and I want to give more time to it than I want to give to you. (laughs) Those things are not allowable, but they might be the truth. What is allowable is for me to say, oh, look at my diary, I'm so busy, I just don't have the capacity. And that's a trump card at which people say, oh, okay. And don't question my character or my motives in the way that I would if I told them that I didn't care. And so what happens is we, it, it, however busy we are, we end up portraying ourselves as busier than however busy we are and we give each other the impression that our lives are fuller than they are, that we have more obligations than we do. And I see this most clearly in church life when I often hear people say that they don't have the capacity to do anything else because life is full, and then somebody suggests doing something that they'd really like to do, and suddenly they're there and gladly give time to it. Now, this is not a plea to please say, you know, I know everyone's got capacity, really, and we can all just do more. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's an issue of honesty. We have a cultural habit of not being honest about our choices of how we use our time, choosing instead to name the reason that is easy and acceptable, but it leads us not to understand each other. And so, when as a community, as a church, together we come to consider the issue, are we doing too much, or what is what is what is this overreach? This is like a kind of grit in the cogs of churning it over together that we're. We're defensive of, of of sort of privacy around the decision making now. Having because of that, as I've prepared for this morning, I've struggled a little bit because as I, it's preparing this has reminded me that I don't really know um, how stretched, how overwrought different people feel. Um, I have an, I have an impression, but I don't really know. So I thought we would do again something that I uh, did in. Uh, The spring, which is have a little survey and find out. So if you've got... I'm going to have to take a moment to explain this, but if you've got an electronic device, you can participate in this this morning. Okay, I need to explain this, though. I'm sorry, I I need to explain this. I'm really hoping this is going to make sense to you. It It made sense to me, but I think a little bit more geometrically, perhaps. I hope this is going to make sense to you. Imagine that there's this box, this purple box is represents all of your life options, all of the things that are available to you to do. And somewhere within all of those things that are available for you to do is this, which is what God actually wants you to do. God's will for your life is a subset of all, amongst all the things that you could do, okay? And one more little shape to stick on here is another shape here. This is another shape representing what you actually do. Does that make sense? All the things you could do, amongst that, what God wants you to do, and then as a different thing again, what are you actually doing with your life? Now, here's, here's the survey. How many? You're going to do this online in just a second. Option number one is actually I'm doing all right. My lifestyle is about right. Doing the right kind of measure of things, doing roughly the right things, actually things are feeling pretty good at the moment. Second thing is that you feel that you're doing the right kind of things, you're just not doing enough. You feel yourself, in some sense, to be a little bit idle, and you know you could do more. Third option is you're doing the right kind of things, but you're, you, you feel that you're doing too much, and something's got to go, something's got to give. Do those make sense? It get slightly more complicated, which is to say, there's another thing, which is you're doing, your level of activity in life is right, but if you stop and think about it, you're not at all convinced you're doing the right things. Maybe life feels quite unfruitful, uh, and you think, well, it's not that I'm over busy, it's just, I'm not sure I'm doing the right things. And then the other two things go along with that. Um, so maybe some of you feel like you're not doing very much, and even what you are doing is wrong. And others you feel like you're doing loads of stuff and probably not much of it's the, the right thing, if you're honest. So let's give you, oh, and then if you go to this website and put in that code, you can choose, and we'll see the results on the screen when they're, when they're coming in, which of those do you think best describes your lifestyle? Now, um, when you get there, you'll find that you can choose two. If If you can't one of those feels a bit not quite right. You can choose two that, that feel like they might be how life is for you. And then we're going to discover how we, how we really are as a church in a way that we've not known before. Okay, whilst we're waiting for that to come through, the system's a little bit more fiddly than it might seem. Um, ahead of knowing what the answers are for us, it's clear that... Um, any departure that we have in our lives from doing God's will, as Romans 12 verse 2 puts it, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, there's, there's one, whatever the differences are between us, there is one thing that leads us all astray from God's pleasing and perfect will for our lives. And that one thing is described in James chapter 1, it says each person is tempted When they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Or to put it a different way, the problem that we all experience is our desires coming first. One of the strongholds that I've described in the last couple of months is what we've called me first. The idea that if if I get on with things and do what I want, then life will go well. But what we're looking at here is how putting our own desires first and not God's desire first leads us astray from his will. And the theme for the rest of this morning is going to be uh, how we replace me first with putting God first. Uh, Indeed, God is the one who came first. As it says at the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That is, God is the origin. When we're thinking of putting God first, what we're talking about is acknowledging his, his existing place. He was before all things. All things were made by him. All life comes from him. So when we're looking at putting God first, it's not like we're trying to sort of shove him to the front of the queue. He's already there. And the challenge for us is to see it and to embrace it. So I have three points. Are we gonna, we're not going to get there? Can, I don't, Sorry. Ah, there we go. Ah, can you all see it yourselves on your screen? Sanjay, there's a thing you can... Emailed he emailed himself the results. There we go. Uh, oh, okay, so number one, oh, should we go in reverse order? That's more exciting, isn't it? I've watched the programs, I know. So, um, <laughs> number five, uh, twi- uh, in last place, number five, with 12 votes, too little and the wrong stuff. In number... Well, that's sixth. In fifth place, uh, number four, with 19 votes, right level but the wrong stuff. Uh, in... This is quite good. People generally don't think they're doing the wrong stuff because the, the fourth one is... The bottom right-hand one, too much and the wrong stuff, 22 votes. And then, actually, there's not a lot of difference between all the ones at the top. Um, The lowest scoring of those at ones across the top is people thinking that they're doing too much, which is 28. Uh, 37 people think they're doing too little, and 39 people are glorious. (laughs) I think that life's about right. So there we are. I will share that somehow or other electronically afterwards. So, um, God should indeed occupy first place. Can I... I, I'm sorry, I want to click again. (laughs) There we go. This is a drawing that someone's done out of a vision in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, where Jesus is riding at the front of the armies of heaven. It's a nice picture for us to remember... That God is, uh, fir- he has first place in our vision. Sanjay has just been very helpful technically. He's also been helpful in directing me to a quote that I want to read from uh, uh, Oscar Romero. Sorry, I'm trying to click again. Uh, it's gonna, the words are going to appear on the screen. There we go. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. Let's put God and his energy, his activity at the forefront of our vision. That's my first point. Here's the second thing. We've had a gift day this morning. I do want to take a moment to talk about what it means to give God first place in our giving. Uh, At Christmas time, we might sing the carol in the bleak midwinter, which finishes with this verse. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. Now that's a very precious sentiment. What does it mean practically to give God our heart? There are various ways that we can give to God in uh, matthew twenty five a parable of Jesus is recorded where he says that whenever you gave something to anyone who was in need, you gave it to me, and so we can give god we can give to God by giving to those who are in need. There is another way that um, I want to mention, and uh, we don 't talk about this as much as uh, actually, we should do because we tend to shy away from talking about the financial aspect of it. And on a day where we have a first of two gift days, it seems a good moment to pause and to say, what about giving to God in our finances? As many of you know, it says in Malachi chapter three, uh, the words of the Lord Almighty, return to me and I will return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? And God says, you rob me. Will a mere mortal rob God? And you ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So tithing. Tithing literally means giving a tenth of your income to God. And the most natural way to give a tenth of your income to God is indeed by giving it to the church. Now, uh, the Church of Christ is not the Old Testament covenant people of Israel. Christ brought a new covenant, and so we have to ask, where I've just read something from the Old Testament, how that applies to us. Well, thankfully, in this matter, Jesus said something that makes it very clear. In Matthew 23 and verse 23, speaking to teachers of the law and Pharisees, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he says, you should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former, the tithing of your mint and dill and cumin. Interesting. Why does Jesus say that we should tithe everything as well as attending to justice and mercy? Well, I believe that we can see a clear answer uh, em- em- emerging ever more clearly in austerity Britain, the years in which we're living here. When there was more money in the public coffers, there were as many youth workers employed in communities as churches employed. No longer, it's quite hard to find publicly paid youth workers these days. There's so much less money around, but the church is still employing youth workers, investing in the lives of those that need it. Refugees across the nation and the nations are most commonly cared for by churches. I don't know if I've told you this before, but um, I sat on a board for a season with someone who had been the chair of the Refugee Council uh, for Britain, and she became a Christian because having got involved with the Refugee Council and traveling around the country, looking at all of the projects that she visited uh, to see how people were caring for refugees, she gradually came to see that they were pretty much all being done by Christians. And she thought, oh, there's something, there's something here. I need to learn about this. People in debt um, are greatly helped by Christians Against Poverty, food banks. Again, overwhelmingly, food banks run by churches around the country. So, maybe this makes sense of what Jesus says. You see, if you give directly to the poor, or if you give directly to people engaged in mission to society in various ways, then those people are blessed, but there is no indirect benefit to the church. It doesn't work that way around. But if you give to the church, then both mission and the poor also end up being blessed. It does work that way around. Indeed, uh, if we look back through history, it's societies in which the church has been strong that have had the strongest concern for the poor, When they've otherwise been neglected. And so a concern for the poor precisely ought to lead us to have a concern for how the church is also sustained. You might say, I can't tithe without going into debt. But then, according to Malachi, pests will devour your crops and so you'll go into debt anyway. The gearbox goes on your car, you sit on your glasses. You need extra dental work. Your travel agent goes bust, leaving you without your holiday. You forget to check your bank balance and end up paying overdraft fees. According to Malachi 3, you can't afford not to tithe. Tithing to the church is a glorious way of keeping on putting God first in our giving. I can tell you marvellous stories of provision. I think it was just last week that we heard Ree's testimony of being given £10 when she just needed it, miraculously. could tell you stories of tens of thousands of pounds being given equally miraculously. God promises to bless. But let me be clear. Whilst God does indeed bless those who put him first, people who tithe still suffer financial hits. Bev and I have tithed since the early years of our marriage. We give 10% of all we get to the church. Our salaries, 10% of our gross salaries prior to tax. Not after tax, because God comes first. Uh, 10% of any benefits we've received, child benefit, tax credits... 10% of any cash gifts. We top things up after Christmas and birthdays and make sure that God gets the first 10% of it. And yet, not so long ago, I still put the wrong fuel in our car and entirely wasted 250 quid. Let me be clear. We don't tithe in order to get blessed. We tithe in order to put God first. It is a powerful antidote to thinking me first. And that makes it a glorious way to live. In fact, Dave Richards speaking here last week, when he heard about the fact we had a gift day today, said something quite critical. He said, what are you doing that for? You shouldn't need to be doing that. What happened? Everybody tithes and then it works. You shouldn't need gift days, he said last week. And there's, there's truth in what he said. Um, Part of our overreach as a church is trying to do all the things that God has spoken to us to do without having the full tithe of all the people that God's connected in to pay for it. And that leads to some people being really quite stretched. What God calls us to do, corporately as a church, we can expect to cost financially roughly what he commands us to give. I hope that makes sense. Putting God first in our, in our giving, I would much rather that rather than people making an extravagant gesture of, or an extravagant gift for the gift day this week or next week, started tithing, that would be much better. Just saying. Okay, and here's the last thing, putting God first in first place in our living. You're going to like this one a lot more than you like the tithing. <laughs> I'm just very aware of that. Um, and it's part of the, the new rhythm that, um, that Keith was prophesying about. Now, uh, it's funny that we like we will like this one because this is about rest and it's about Sabbath and it's it's God asks for a tenth of our money. He's more demanding around our time. He wants a seventh of our money. That's up from ten percent to a bit over fourteen percent. He wants more of our time than he wants of our money. Uh, like tithing, Sabbath keeping has a benefit for the poor. It's explained in Exodus 23. It's actually been one of the reasons why society has still, in some sense, defended keeping Sunday special because it protects the most vulnerable in society from a measure of exploitation. But that's, that's not the first reason given in Scripture for the Sabbath. That's in Exodus 23. Before that, in Exodus 16, we get the first mention of Sabbath practice, when the manna came down. And the first command in Exodus 20 is about keeping the Sabbath in order to imitate God, in order to be like him, uh, being able to rest and not working compulsively, not having always to be productive. The ancient Babylonians had a seven-day week. And on the seventh day, they avoided certain activities. But the reason that they did so was because they believed the seventh day was unlucky. And therefore, you shouldn't do certain things on that day because they'd go wrong. The Romans, the ancient Romans, finished their week with a shopping day. So that you could spend what you'd earned on the other days. The Jewish Sabbath was different. The Jewish Sabbath is a day to worship, uh, to gather to worship, and, and a day of rest. Now, this is leading towards a very practical response to this question of, what are we going to do as a church to address a sense of trying to do too many things, of stretching out here and there and lacking focus? Well, we're going to talk more and more together about Sabbath. We're going to find a way together, somehow together to talk about the importance of Sabbath keeping so that we would indeed give God a seventh of our time and honor him in that way. Now, for many of you, it will work perfectly well to make Sunday a Sabbath day, to come here, to spend time with friends and with family, to make sure you've got time in the afternoon to read the scriptures and to worship and Uh, and to give the day to God. Uh, It won't work for everybody. It doesn't work so well for me to see today as a day of rest. Some of you that work shifts in hospitals and for other reasons will find that it's not about keeping Sunday special, though that may well be the expression for a great many people, uh, but about Sabbath keeping. It's about a good Sabbath involving time for relationship with God, time for relationship with family and friends and church family. And it's time to step off the treadmill of productivity and to avoid doing things uh, for their usefulness. As uh, the church leaders have begun to discuss overreach, we've agreed to start... uh, to hold one another accountable for maintaining a Sabbath, which is not something that we have done, but we're going to start to hold one another accountable for maintaining a Sabbath. And we expect that the consequence of that will be be some activities that the church does will no longer be sustainable. We don't know which ones yet, but we're expecting that to be the case. And we want to establish some new expectations in the church, throughout the church, about Sabbath, without becoming condemning or legalistic, but being open and accountable. And then there is this promise of Scripture. It's in Isaiah 58. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please... Then you will find joy in the Lord, and God says, "I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land, and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob." For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, uh, I've said a number of different things in the last uh, forty minutes or so, and I don't know which ones will have landed with you as the as the greater challenge. Uh, before we did that survey, I really didn't know what kind of responses they would get and how many people would be feeling overstretched in life. And um, there'll be clearly different points of what I've said will land as a a challenge or an encouragement to to different ones of us. Um, But we're going to finish together by praying a singular prayer, um, which Dan Kirk has written, um, which um, we have further agreed that going forward, all of the leadership meetings in the church will begin by praying this prayer until it's got into us enough. And you'll see why we need it in a minute. Um, The words are going to appear on the screen, and I'm going to invite you to pray along with me. The words are also on a piece of pink card that you can pick up from the very marvellous welcome desk at the back uh, so that you can take these away with you and make use of this prayer as you like. It's entitled, A Prayer to Our Active God. And I invite you to read through this with me, and then I'm going to hand back to Al, and we're going to break bread together. Let's pray. We gratefully come now into your presence, O God. Loving Father, enfold us in your love. Good Shepherd, lead us in right paths. Gentle Spirit, indwell us and empower us for all the good works prepared for us. In work, in rest, we trust the grace of God. Father, you do all the work. We are only your instruments. Nothing good can come from our work alone. Free us from any hint of independent living. For you do not bless any work solely of human strength. Nor do you bless endeavors where self-love has displaced divine love. In work, in rest, we trust the grace of God. May our zeal for action always be united to the action of Jesus. May we never begin anything save that you would have us begin. May we never leave undone the work you have called us to do. May we labor with all the energy of the Messiah at work in us, and may all our acts of love spring from delight in you, your people, and your world. In work, in rest, we trust the grace of God. Amen.